chapter 1. We'll be looking this morning at verses 14 through 20. In 1964, the extremely popular band, the Beatles, made their first trip to America and began what was called the British Invasion. And what followed was called Beatlemania, as people practically went insane over the presence of this rock and roll band. And Beatlemania spread like an epidemic across the country. Everywhere the Beatles went, they were followed by screaming fans and practically worshipped. Mass hysteria followed from event to event. Everywhere they went, it was just Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It was a phenomenon. It would become a paradigm for other bands, rock and roll bands mostly, that would follow. They have some of the most obsessed and dedicated fans. One example that would come about a decade later was the uh, rock group The Grateful Dead. They amassed this huge following, and its fans were known as Deadheads. They were this group of fans who would literally follow the band around. They, were, they would even dress themselves like members of the band, and, and you could tell who they were just by looking at them. And again, what really set them apart was they would load up in these big Volkswagen vans and drive from city to city. Wherever the band was going to be, they would follow them around. If they had jobs at all, which I, I doubt they did, What really defined them was not their employment or their career. It was their dedication to this rock group. They would even go in and record concerts on little tiny tape recorders and then be able to share those tapes with one another, especially people who maybe couldn't make it to that concert. They collected all the records, all the merchandise. Whatever else they were, they were fans. In fact, I looked online at some famous people who are reported to have been deadheads who followed the the Grateful Dead during its period of the 70s and 80s. And it was an interesting list. People who now are well known for other things. For instance, in the political world, on the right is Ann Coulter and Tucker Carlson who apparently had some following of this. On the left, you have Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi. Now, There's no mystery that those people are worlds apart politically. And yet, at least at one time, they shared a love for the same band. It's it's interesting how that happens. Again, whatever else they are, politically or otherwise, they were fans. Now, fans is a fairly recent term. If you took this back 2,000 years, we would undoubtedly call these people disciples. They were disciples, followers of a person or group. And the term disciples was well known in the Bible, in Bible times. The word disciple really means a follower or a learner. It was used in the ancient Greek world, for instance, to refer to someone who was a follower of a certain philosopher or a certain teaching. For instance, Demosthenes, who was an ancient Greek philosopher, was one of the sophists, and he was called a disciple. In Jewish culture, however, a rabbi would collect a group of disciples, of followers, and then he would instruct them in the teachings of the book of the law. And the the disciple-rabbi paradigm seems to be closest to what we see in the Gospels. The rabbi was actually more than just a teacher. He didn't just have disciples so he could instruct them in some basic classroom uh, type of instruction. No, a rabbi was a person whom the disciple wished to imitate. He was the mold into which they wished to grow and develop. So for a disciple, the rabbi is the model. Just like for the fan, you you follow around, you're dedicated to whatever it is that you follow. Well, when we look at the Gospels, we see Jesus collecting 12 disciples whom he would train, send out, and who would in turn influence the world for Christ. Now there's something quite unique about Jesus' 12 disciples. And in that sense, Jesus is not calling disciples to himself today. Because, again, there's something unique about these 12. They were literally with Christ. They walked with him. They saw his miracles. They heard his voice. Now, we don't have access to Christ in that same way today, do we? But we are still called to be disciples in some sense. When Jesus left this world, he told his disciples, the twelve, 
or what was left of them, go and make disciples. So clearly Jesus considered this act and this process of discipleship to continue long after he was gone. And it would happen through them. There would be a chain of discipleship starting with Jesus through the 12 and eventually down through the history of time to us. And we in turn are called to be disciples. As we look in Mark's gospel, and particularly in this passage this morning, I want us to see this, that we are summoned to be Jesus' disciples. We are summoned to be Jesus' disciples. Now, if we recall last time when we looked at verses 1 through 13, we looked at the unique qualifications of Christ. That he is uniquely prepared to be the Redeemer, Savior that we need. He passes all the tests. But now, we see Christ going into Galilee and taking on this ministry. What we saw prepared for in verses 1 through 13 is now being carried out in verses 14 and following. Now, Mark spends virtually no time on this. He launches right in. Look at verse 14, if you will. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You notice the beginning of verse 14, there's this little phrase. Now, after John was put in prison, it implies a period of time, doesn't it? It's almost like we finished the, the temptation narrative back in verse 13. And then it says, now, after John was put in prison. So some time has elapsed, and the Bible doesn't tell us here how much. And we do know from John's gospel that for about 11 months, Jesus remained in Judea, baptizing in the Jordan River, that he encountered a, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, whom he shared with about his life and his the new life that was in him. We also know that during this time, Jesus cleansed the temple, went in and turned over tables. He'll do it again, by the way, in Mark's gospel as well. But you have 11 months uh, that are just skipped over, essentially, by Mark, because he's moving us on. Remember, Mark is this fast-paced gospel that's always driving us forward. And so he, he jumps ahead and says, now, after John was arrested. Now, that's a significant event, in fact, it may indicate something of why Jesus moves to Galilee. Once John was arrested, and John was arrested for speaking out against Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the local tetrarch, the leader. And John's message of repentance wasn't just for the crowds. It was for everybody. And he dared to suggest that the king himself should repent. And of course, the king didn't like that message, and John was arrested so Jesus has several reasons for leaving Judea. First of all, there's danger in the air. If they're going to arrest John and behead him, then certainly Christ's life could easily be cut off, and so he moves to what is a safer location. But there's more than that. He moves to Galilee because it was predicted. The Bible had said that the light would come first to Galilee, the region of the Gentiles. So Christ moves to Galilee to fulfill scripture. Third, it also makes sense because Jesus grew up in Galilee. That was his backyard. Nazareth being a small little town right in the, city of Gal in the region of Galilee. The first thing he does, though, is he makes disciples. He calls out a group to follow him. So I think the question we ought to address this morning is, what makes a disciple? What is a disciple? Well, I want to point out three essential elements that make a disciple this morning, and I want to show them to you from this passage. We could call these the sine qua non of discipleship, the, the key elements that if you don't have them, you don't have a disciple. Let's look at them. Number one, to be a disciple, you must repent and believe the gospel. You must repent and believe the gospel. There's no such thing as discipleship without conversion, without trusting first in Christ. Let's return again to verses 14 and 15. The Bible there says, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So we just mentioned that John being in prison for his repeated calls to Herod Antipas to turn from his sin, now Jesus moves to Galilee. 
Now, the region of Galilee is up in the north of Israel. It surrounds, if you look at a map of Israel, and most Bibles will have one in the back, uh, the Sea of Galilee is a little lake positioned right in the center. And that whole region around is called Galilee. It was a very, very beautiful area. Unlike Judea in the south, which could be very unforgiving and desertous, Galilee was a lush paradise. All kinds of produce could be grown up in the Galilee region. That's still true today. Now, the region of Galilee has special meaning to me because I lived there for about a year. A little kibbutz on the south side of the Sea of Galilee. Every day I would step out and I could see the sea right from our front door. In fact, uh, we can advance this picture. Um, it really gets, uh, that's basically a picture from my front door uh, where I lived. The Sea of Galilee itself is, like I said, more of a lake than a sea. It's about 14 miles long, 7 miles wide, kind of a pear shape. And, and it, it's about 600, uh, between 100 to 600 feet deep in different parts. It's a good-sized lake, but for most people who visit Galilee, they're thinking of sea. And when they get there, it's oftentimes a little bit of a disappointment, like, oh, that's it? You know, I, I have lakes bigger than that back, in, back home. But it was the largest body of fresh water in the land. And so it was very important economically for Galilee. We see, though, Jesus move his ministry to Galilee. He makes this move to Galilee. And again, I think the reasons are make sense. This is where he grew up. This is what uh, a, a place where he could carry out this task of making disciples uninterrupted. And while he is in Galilee, the first real thing we see is Jesus preaching in Galilee. So he makes the move to Galilee and then he is preaching there. In fact, it even says that in verse 14, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God or preaching the gospel of God. Now, you might say, well, what is this gospel? What, what is he saying? Well, verse 15 gives us a kind of a summary of Jesus' message. What was Jesus proclaiming? Well, he was proclaiming this in a nutshell. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's his message. Now, it's interesting to me that despite the many miraculous signs Jesus did, it seems to be his preaching that was his primary mission. It always came back to preaching. And, and I think sometimes we, in our minds, because of all the miracles and the healings and things, we think of Jesus as sort of going about doing good. That's true. But I imagine that he spent as much, if not more, time preaching than he did healing or doing miracles. I would always, of all the places in the world, I would love to go back and hear Jesus preaching. You know, I'm, I'm one of those strange people that if given a time machine, there would be a lot of things I'd want to see. But I'm, I'm a kind of person that would, I would love to go back and hear some of the great preaching of the past. You know, I'd love to go hear George Whitfield preaching in the open air to thousands of people. Love to go visit the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Here's Charles Spurgeon preach. But above them all, head and shoulders, is Jesus. And I don't know what exactly his preaching style was like or his voice, but certainly the content of what he preached is unrivaled. He spoke not as a man, but as God, with all authority given to him. The message, though, he proclaims is contained here in verse 15. And it's interesting because it's defined by three basic words. Kingdom, repentance, and faith. And it's those three words I want to draw out. Beginning in verse 15, it says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, all the Gospels point this out, that Jesus' preaching was centered around this idea of the kingdom. The kingdom being at hand. Now, I think modern readers oftentimes dispute, well, what did Jesus mean by kingdom? I believe, though, his original audience understood him quite well. So much so that Mark doesn't have to provide a big explanation. They knew what Jesus was talking about. Let's look at how Mark presents his teaching. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. The time is fulfilled. In other words, the time had come for God's plan from eternity past to be revealed in Christ. And it's interesting to me, this word time here is not the word to refer to chronology, but to a season of time. 
Here's what it says in the complete word study dictionary of the New Testament. The word kairos, which is here, not chronos. It says this, it is not merely the succession of minutes, which is chronos, but a period of opportunity. There is really no English equivalent for the word kairos. It really means the appropriate or opportune time. So the idea of the time being fulfilled is not necessarily, you know, every minute has been ticking up to this, but rather now is the time. Something new is happening. Something is unfolding in God's plan right in front of you. The time is fulfilled. But he also says the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, again, the Jewish audience here full well knew that the, what the kingdom of God was all about. The Old Testament, and, and I can invite you to, to study it on your own, but if you go back through the Old Testament prophecies, it talks about a kingdom. It was going to be a golden age in which Israel would be restored to their land as sovereign over it, where prosperity and peace would reign, where every man would sit down under his fig tree and under his vine, where the, the lion and the lamb would lie down together, where righteousness and justice would be practiced universally. It was a time of great wealth and prosperity and of righteousness. And all of that was to take place in the real world, the real Israel. And what would bring about this golden age? Well, a king would become who would be a descendant of David, who would reign and rule over Israel in righteousness and justice. His kingdom would never end. And, and again, I could give you a whole long list of references where that comes from in the Old Testament. And that's what people were expecting a kingdom to come, and this king would deliver them from their enemies and bring in this golden age. But we notice there's a bit of a problem here, right? Because Jesus says in verse 15 that the kingdom of God is at hand. And we look around and we say, well, this doesn't look like the golden age, does it? In fact, we have, still have a lot of problems in our world. I don't see peace and righteousness prevailing. So what happened? Are we not in the golden age? Well, some theologians conclude that Jesus totally redefined the kingdom. That Jesus came preaching a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom in the heart, versus what the Old Testament predicted, or what you would expect from the Old Testament. Because of Israel's rejection, the kingdom is now fulfilled spiritually in the church. But I have to ask, what about the promises? What about all that the Old Testament said? Are those simply to be spiritualized? All the prophecies about Jesus' first coming aren't spiritualized. They're literal. So why should it be different with the kingdom? I agree with theologian Michael Vlock, who writes, the kingdom of the Old Testament prophets is the same kingdom John and Jesus were proclaiming. It's the same thing. Jesus did not change the script. He did not alter the expectations. So what does he mean then at hand? Well, I think the first thing we've got to notice is when he says the kingdom is at hand, it means it's not here yet. It's not here yet. It's, it's close, but not here. Second, we note that the kingdom is ushered in by the king. And since the king has arrived, then the kingdom is truly offered in Christ. Now, that may seem odd to you that well, how can Jesus be offering the kingdom if it doesn't really come? Well, we could spend all day running through hypothetical scenarios and ask ourselves, you know, what if Israel had repented and accepted Christ rather than rejected him? You know, could the kingdom have dawned in that time? You know, what about the cross and the suffering Savior? How would that have been fulfilled? All those are speculations about how it could have been. What we know is how it did happen. And what did happen perfectly matches that Christ comes offering to them, repent and believe, and this kingdom may come and will come, but they reject it just as it was foretold. His preaching is about the kingdom, but let's not get too trapped on that because it's also about repentance and this is perhaps the part that the, his audience missed they wanted the kingdom yes bring that but repentance me what for see the good news of jesus came preaching must be met with true repentance and by the way the word repent here in verse 15 is an imperative it's a command so if you're listening to me right now or if you've heard these verses preached before, you have two options. You can either disobey or you can obey. 
Those are, that's it. Those are the only two options. So you can repent, which is what Jesus commands, or you can disobey Christ. The option is yours. Repent, he says. What does it mean, though, to repent? What's included in this idea? Well, repent really has the idea of turning, of turning. The etymology of the word means to change one's mind. Now, some people will say that it's mainly just a change of mind. It doesn't involve a change of, of attitude towards sin or a change of anything else. And they usually get there based on the etymology, but etymology alone does not determine the meaning of a word. We have to look at its usage. For instance, if you look at the etymology of the word butterfly, you would think that it is flying butter, right? I mean, that just makes sense. I mean, it's butter and fly, you know, butter that flies. But we have to look at how the word is used, right? It's used to refer to this little insect, not to flying butter or rolls being thrown across the room. The point is, we have to look at how it's used. And again, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because the Bible has a lot to say about repentance. But let me just say this. Repentance is not just intellectual. Repentance is not just intellectual. It's not just, I'm thinking this way, I'm going to think differently. There's so many scriptures. In fact, even the preaching of John the Baptist, who was calling people to repent, what did he tell them to do? He said, if, if you've stolen from someone, well, you need to return what you've stolen. There needs to be a change, not just in your way you think, but in how you respond. You think about all the people that Paul encountered who were idolaters, and then they repented. They turned to God, but not only that, they turned away from their idols. So it's a turning. It's not just an intellectual. It's not just a change of mind, even though that's how the word originally came to be formed. Repentance is also not just emotional. It's not just emotional either. Sometimes people equate repentance with sort of feelings of grief and sorrow and guilt over sin. And certainly that may be a part of repentance, but that's not the sum total. The sum total of repentance is not, I feel bad for what I did. That may just be the beginning. No, repentance is intellectual, emotional, and volitional. It involves the mind, it involves our emotions, but it most of all involves our will, volition. It involves us turning from sin to the living God. From something, turning away from, and then turning to something else. In the Bible, it's talking about turning from sin to God. Repentance is like what we see in the book of Jonah. Remember Jonah comes proclaiming to the city of Nineveh, 40 days and you will be overthrown. And what happens? They repent. They change directions dramatically. From, from the arrogant, boastful, self-important, proud, violent ways, they turn to repentance. They turn to the God of Israel. You see, part of Jesus' message was repentance. If we miss that, we miss part of what Jesus was proclaiming. Not only that, he also was proclaiming faith. Faith or belief. Notice what it says, repent and believe the gospel. Now, some Christians, again, have tried to draw a sharp line between believing and repenting. You know, we, we're saved by believing, and that adding repentance is adding works. I would say that the two are interconnected. There is no faith without repentance and repentance without faith, at least not true faith or true repentance. It's been often said that those two are two sides of the same coin. You know, you pull out a quarter, on one side is... George Washington, on the other side is the eagle. And on the heads and tails side of the coin, you, you can only really look, I mean, you look at one or the other. But I'm pretty sure that if you had a quarter where it had only one side, you wouldn't really have a quarter, would you? Again, I, I suppose you can go out and try it if you find a defective coin like that. But my guess is it wouldn't be accepted. It's a half a coin. It's not the real thing. You need both sides to make it a quarter, and so it is with conversion. Both are needed, faith and repentance. And to try and divide them, I think, does violence to what Scripture teaches. Jesus tells them, not only repent, but believe. That is, accept, trust in, rely on this message that I'm proclaiming. 
And when Paul said to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't mean believe and don't repent. In fact, in the very next chapter, Paul says to the, to the uh, people in Athens, repent. But he doesn't say believe. So was he trying to, telling them to repent without believing? No, I think both can be substituted for each other. They're so interconnected that you can say repent or believe, and you know that both are included in that idea. Here's another thing I want us to note about Jesus preaching before we, we move on, this whole matter of repenting and believing the gospel. R. Kent Hughes talks about the radical nowness of Jesus preaching. He states, now is the time to believe. Now is the time to repent. How would Jesus urge you or someone else to believe if he were here right now? You see, Christ's preaching has a sense of urgency to it. Repent and believe. You must do this. You must do this now. Again, there's no other way to be a disciple. You can't be a disciple unless you have put your faith and trust in Christ, that you've repented of your sins. You are his. Anything else is just a charade. Now, there's a lot of people who do go to church who outwardly may look like disciples in some ways, but they've never really put their faith in Christ. They've never really repented. The road to discipleship begins at the cross when one believes in Christ. A few years ago, we did a Sunday night study here at the church through the book, How to Share Your Faith Without Fear. It was a good book. And in the book, the author, who's my uncle, Jay, uses an illustration that uh, if you were there for it, you'll probably remember. Uh, during the course of the book, he, he compares discipleship to the board game of Sorry. If you've ever played Sorry, you know, it's the, the board has four different players and you have marbles. That they're all stuck in home base. You have to get them on the board and then move around the board and get them into home. That's where they're finally safe. And when you get all your marbles in, you're done. Well, he compares that board to discipleship. That all of us are like marbles on this board. We're moving around towards home, towards heaven, and we're all at different places. Some of us are more mature than others. Some of us are further ahead. Some of us are, are much farther around the board than others. Some of us are just getting started. We're just on the board. Let me suggest that repentance is faith is what gets you out of home base onto the board. There's no other way to get on the path of discipleship except by trusting in Christ. The journey begins when we get on the board. And you get on the board by faith and repentance in the Lord. Starting block for disciples is repent and believe the gospel. No one can be a disciple without that. Secondly, though, the second essential quality of being a disciple is follow Christ. Follow Christ. Again, this is so elementary, isn't it? A disciple must be someone who follows, a follower of Jesus. Again, this is what it meant to be a disciple, to, to follow somebody with the plan, the intention to imitate them. First major act Jesus does in his Galilean ministry is selecting disciples. This is very uncommon, by the way, what happens in verses 16 to 20. Normally, a disciple would seek out a rabbi. You as a disciple would find somebody that you appreciated, that you really looked up to, and then you would latch yourself onto them, become a fan, a disciple, and you would follow them around. The opposite happens here. Jesus, the rabbi, is the one seeking out the disciples. It's kind of the opposite of what you'd expect. And it's even more interesting when you realize who he sought out. He goes to some fishermen around the Sea of Galilee. Not exactly uh, highbrow uh, selection here. He doesn't visit the Ivy League schools or you know, the rabbinic academies or the learned of the community. He goes to some simple fishermen. Let me uh, make a very important point here before we get further into this text. When I say it's an essential element of, for disciples to follow Christ, I'm not saying that's a subsequent or later step after faith and repentance. In other words, I'm not saying a person can believe in Jesus, and then later on, if they're really committed and they really want to, they can become a disciple. No, you're a disciple at the moment you trust. The question is whether you're a good disciple or a bad one. 
but discipleship comes along. It's kind of like the word saint. In the Bible, we're described as saints, holy ones. Now, when do you become a saint? It's not some later thing. It's not when you get uh, selected or whenever it's bestowed upon you by the church or something like that. You're a saint at the moment of salvation. Now, you might not be a very good saint, but you're a saint nonetheless. So it is with discipleship. It's not something we add on later. You know, whenever I'm checking out at the store sometimes, usually with electronics, uh, sometimes you'll get asked, do you want the extended protection plan? I almost always say no, but it's almost like an add-on. It is an add-on. It's like, here, you know, this would be nice. You know, it will offer you some extra protection. Or maybe a better illustration will be you're buying a new car, and they start offering, here's some upgrades. You can add this and that to the car, and it'll just make it a little nicer. Extra features. You don't really need them. And I'm, sometimes people will talk about discipleship as if it's sort of, eh, it's nice if you do it, but repent and believe, that's, that's how you get in, but discipleship's a later thing. Not really. It's one and the same. It's bound up with what it means to be a follower, a believer in Christ. Let's look at what happens in the very next scene, starting in verse 16. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he was gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and they, and who were also in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. So the calling of the disciples, a fairly familiar event, but I think it depicts this idea, this important aspect of what it means to be disciples, that they, disciples are those who follow Jesus, who submit to him as master and Lord. The scene in verse 16 transitions to the rocky shores of the Sea of Galilee. Again, it was an important feature, not only in the landscape, but also in the economy of Israel. As the largest freshwater lake in the country, it's teeming with fish, which became a major export for Galilee. They were well known for salting and packing fish and sending them all over the kingdom. And archaeologists have discovered in the Sea of Galilee 16 ancient harbors where fishing boats would have been launched into the sea. Now, fishing was a major enterprise, and Peter, James, John, Andrew all would have provided for their families and made a pretty decent living as a kind of middle class as fishermen. Now, fishing on the Sea of Galilee is not as important as it once was, but it's still practiced today, and a lot like it was in ancient times. Again, I had the privilege to live right by the Sea of Galilee, and so one, one afternoon, or actually it was morning and afternoon, uh, we had the opportunity to go out with some professional fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. That was a very eye-opening experience. Uh, in fact, we can go ahead to some of those pictures. So what happens is you've got the larger fishing boat, which is where I'm taking the photo from, and we have a smaller boat in tow. What happens is we've got a large net, and you can see him hauling that net up out of the water. In a large circle, they would drop this net down, and then with ropes, pull it in, close it up, and then hoist it up, and then the fish would be dropped into the front of the boat, and there's our catch for the day. Now, that's pretty much how it was done in ancient times. You know, the fishing boat would go out. They would drop a large line, let it sink down. They had rock weights on these nets to sort of sink down, and they would gather it up, pull up any fish they caught in the process. So, again, it was very much like it was done with Peter, James, and John, except we had sonar to find out where the fish were, you know, so not entirely the same. But it is interesting that Jesus approaches these Fishermen, average guys, ordinary guys, nothing special. I I just described going out in a fishing boat, but there was actually two ways to fish on the Sea of Galilee in ancient times. You could go out in a boat, drop a big net, pull it up, or you could stand in the shallow part of the water and take a net and cast it. It was a much, you didn't catch as much that way. It was more like fishing with a line or a pole. But you would cast the, the net out, then you would go out to where it was, draw it in. Sometimes you'd even have to dive down to draw the net in and pull it up and see what you catch. 
It seems that that's what Peter and Andrew were doing on the side of the Sea of Galilee. Look at verse 16. As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon. By the way, Simon is Peter. He goes by both names. And Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So it appears they're standing in the shallows, throwing the net out. And the word casting a net here is interesting because it's, it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. In fact, it's a really rare word. It makes me think that it was probably a technical term that only fishermen would have known. Again, Peter is the one narrating Mark's gospel, so he's probably using insider lingo here. Nevertheless, they're standing casting the net out into the, the water, and Jesus walks up, and he sees these guys. And we see, at first, the invitation that goes out. The invitation. Upon coming upon these two men, Jesus calls out to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So Jesus' invitation is both simple yet profound. Follow me. It really describes the heart of discipleship. Discipleship is about following someone or something. Now, in our overconnected world of today, People use the word follow to be like a fan, like the Beatles, you know. Uh, even on Twitter, people will, oh, I follow this person on Twitter. Well, it means basically you just see what they're saying, I guess. Nevertheless, following in as a disciple is something far, far more. It means that you are shadowing this person. You're, you're walking in his footsteps. You're watching what he says and what he does. If you're following somebody, it means that you are Observing their life closely, listening to their teaching, embracing what they say, but also forming your life after that person. So when Jesus says, follow me, he means all of that here. Notice what following Christ entailed. They immediately left their nets and followed him. For the disciples, it meant setting aside the thing that meant most to them before, that is their career as fishermen, to pursue something greater. Again, there's something quite unique about this. Not everyone is called to leave their job and career to follow Jesus, right? But again, they were following Christ personally in a physical, real one-on-one type of way. Now, we don't have to leave a career because we can have a relationship with Christ anywhere we are, right? We can know Christ today here in this place. Now, we don't know have him physically with us, but we can study his teaching in his word. We can see the pattern of his life. We have a relationship with Christ, which in many ways, in some ways, is actually more intimate than what the disciples could experience, even with him personally. He calls them, though, to leave. And I will say this, discipleship and following Jesus often means we've got to leave something. Again, if it's a matter of repentance, you know, if it's anything sinful. But there, there are things that get left behind, things that maybe were important to us before, are now on the back burner because we're following Christ and that matters more. Whether it's career, whether it's hobbies, whether whatever it is, when Jesus becomes the, the center point of our life that I'm living for him, suddenly other things become less important. And apparently, the nets became less important to the disciples. They immediately left their nets. There's that word immediately again. They were called to literally follow Jesus around Galilee. So I guess the question is, what's most important in life, our lives? For the disciple, following Jesus is the most important thing. It matters more than everything else. Whatever might rival our commitment to Christ must be set aside to follow Christ. We see their response. They willingly and gladly left their nets. Obviously, discipleship begins with repentance and belief. But it's obvious in Mark, well, it's not so obvious in Mark, I guess. But in the other Gospels, we do know this, that this was not the first time that Peter, Andrew, James, and John had met Jesus. Because, again, it might appear on reading that Jesus kind of comes along and casts a spell on them where they're sort of like in this daze and, oh, we'll follow you. It's like, who in their right mind would just start following a perfect stranger who walked up? But they, remember, they were disciples of John the Baptist before they were disciples of Jesus. 
they had heard John the Baptist point and seen him point at Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They had even spent some time with Jesus down in Judea. So by the time Jesus comes along, they're already acquainted with him. In fact, what probably happened is they came back from Judea, went back to their jobs, back to their regular life in Galilee, thinking, man, this, what a great, you know, we've met the, the Savior Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, you know, come back with a smile on their face, having no idea that they're going to have more chances to meet him. They're just glad they got to see him at all. So when they see him coming up the shore and he says, hey, follow me, they were probably throwing their nets down saying, I can't believe this one whom I've already come to be convinced, they've already repented and put their faith in him. They said, I can't believe I'm going to get to follow him. And they do. They respond immediately and obediently to Christ as in his calling. You notice it also happens with the next two brothers as well. James and John, in verse 19, were, were in the boat. So instead of casting their nets in, they were doing the boat fishing. They're mending nets in the boat, and Jesus comes along, same thing. Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left the boat and followed Christ. I also want to point out, finally, though, the process of following. Because there's an interesting phrase here in verse 17. Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. It's a weird way to say that, isn't it? I will make you become. That's odd. But it's a good reflection of the actual Greek here. The idea is, I'm gonna, come follow me, and you will start to become fishers of men. You will start to become disciples. It is not something that happens overnight. In fact, Mark kind of labors this point. Disciples are pretty dull sometimes. They don't get it immediately. In fact, it takes Jesus three, four, five times teaching a single concept before it manages to penetrate their thick skulls. Discipleship is a process. And we ought to remember that about ourselves and others. That when it comes to following Jesus, none of us do it naturally or even do it well to begin with. It's something that we continue to grow in and improve in. All of us are becoming disciples. And we all have a long way to go. Now, what I'm saying is it's fundamental to being a disciple that we follow Christ. For the original disciples, that meant being with him, watching him, listening to him. They saw how he helped the poor. They saw how he confronted the Pharisees. They were there with him. And something about Jesus rubbed off on them. In fact, when Peter and John stood before the Jewish leaders in Acts, the Jews noted they were uneducated and untrained men, but they had been with Jesus. That was the thing they recognized. Jesus has rubbed off on these guys in a major way. That's what discipleship is. is that we come to, to believe and understand Jesus' teaching. We are committed to him. More committed to him than your favorite band, your favorite sports team, your favorite anything. He is the number one. And we desire to be more like our Savior. A couple of decades ago, there was a really well-known a Gatorade commercial featuring Michael Jordan. And the tagline for the commercial and the, the jingle that went along with it was, Be Like Mike, right? It was a real popular, famous one. And the whole idea is, you know, Michael Jordan, at the top of his game, you know, the greatest basketball player of his generation of that time, certainly, and some would argue of all time, but nevertheless, he was the one that kids come along and say, I want to be like Michael Jordan. Look at the moves. Look at his skills. And it wasn't just skills and, and basketball moves, but, you know, even the shoes and the dress and everything about We want to be like him because we adore him. We, we love him. That's how believers ought to be of Christ. Be not like Mike. Be like Christ. We imitate our lives. Everything about our lives should be lining up with Christ in some way, following his teaching, following his example. Finally, though, the last element of what it means to be a disciple, this essential element, is to make disciples, to make disciples. Again, I skipped over a phrase, and it was probably pretty obvious. Verse 17, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. It's obvious why Jesus uses this little phrase, fishers of men. 
He's talking to fishermen, right? They get fishing. That's what they've been doing their whole lives. Probably since the time they were kids, they've been fishing in the Sea of Galilee. He says, listen, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of a different kind. Fishers of men. He's talking here about making disciples. You disciples, you who follow me, I want you to go and and catch others. Share with them this passion that you have found. Share with them what it means to follow me. So they understood fishing, and now he's setting them on a different task. Now here's something you may not know. The whole idea of fishers of men is actually kind of, well, it alludes to several portions of the Old Testament. For instance, Jeremiah 16, 16 says this, I will send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. After that, I will send many hunters, and they will hunt them down on every mountain and hill and crevice of the rocks. Now, there's several other places that use fishermen in the same way, fishing for men, but it's always about judgment, that God is going to send out fishers who will catch sinners in their sin and bring them to judgment. Well, is that what Jesus has in mind here? Think of it this way. One of the things that the disciples are going to be doing as fishers of men is warning people about the coming judgment. And that seems to play well into how that metaphor is used in the Old Testament. Warning of judgment to come. And isn't that part of what we should do in evangelizing and sharing the gospel is to warn people, listen, this isn't a game. This isn't, you know, Jesus isn't just a lucky charm to make your life a little better. Eternal punishment hangs in the balance. What you do with Christ matters for eternity in a huge way. So there's sort of a negative warning of judgment thought here in this fishers of men. But let me also emphasize on the flip side, it does have a positive element, too. Because if we're warning people of judgment, what are we wanting them to do? Repent and believe, become disciples, and then they will know eternal life. So, yes, fishers of men is a good thing. Because as we warn people of judgment, as we share the good news, ideally they're coming to know Christ, coming to be his disciples. Point is, disciples fish for more disciples. Disciples are intrinsically self-replicating. We ought to be making other disciples. And that's, again, the marching orders for the church. When Jesus left this planet, he said, go and make disciples. That's the task we have before us. Well, if modern studies and surveys are correct, then American disciples, I'm afraid, are failing pretty badly in this essential element. Only a very small percentage of confessing Christians say that they share their faith with anyone. And I think that's, that's tragic because as disciples, we ought to be sharing our faith. Now, you might think to yourself, well, I'm not really an evangelist. You know, That's not really my gift. I'm not particularly good at talking with people. And especially you look at you know, evangelists up in front of a crowd preaching the gospel, and you say, well, that's not me at all. Well, that's fine. Not all evangelism has to be preaching or missions. In fact, you don't even need to know that much or even do that much. We should talk about Christ because we love him. Edward Kimball was a not a super intelligent or extremely eloquent man. He was a dry good salesman. And he agreed to teach a Sunday school class in his church to teenage boys, which he must have had some guts, I guess, to take on that task. Well, in his class was a biblically clueless young man named Dwight. And he kind of saw him and said, here's a person. And honestly, he didn't, he didn't show any evidence of knowing Christ. So Kimball just was concerned about him. Again, not a a great public speaker, not a dynamic personality, but he loved his students, and he got to know them. He got to know their backgrounds. Well, one day, he visited this student named Dwight, who was at work, and he just shared with him about his burden that really wanted to talk to him about Christ. And so he he went and talked to Dwight and told, told him that Jesus had done for him on the cross and all of that, 
Later, Kimball would say, I simply told them of Christ's love and the love that Christ wanted in return. So here was a simple guy, you know, not super educated or anything like that, just faithful to share Christ. Well, in the back room of that shoe store, Dwight experienced the love of Christ for himself. And if you haven't figured out, Dwight is D.L., Dwight L. Moody, who became the famous evangelist, the founder of Moody Bible Institute. Thousands, perhaps probably millions of people have been reached through the ministry of Moody and the ministries that he started. So do I think that you are a Dwight L. Moody? Well, chances are we probably don't have any here. But you can be an Edward Kimball. That's not that hard. You can love somebody. You can find someone and share the love of Christ with them. doesn't have to be fancy. doesn't have to be anything too complex. Just the simple message of Jesus. You know, again, we, we make it more complicated than it needs to be, but we're called to be fishers of men. Go out and make disciples. Coming up in the next couple of weeks, uh, we're hoping to have presence at a couple of local upcoming uh, fall festivals and things. And By presence, I mean we're going to set up a church table and, and hand out gospel tracts and information about the church and stuff like that. It may not seem like a big deal, but we're hopeful and praying that we might have opportunities to share Christ with someone. So if you say, hey, I'd like to, I'd like to help be a fisher of men, that's just one opportunity to do that. See, God is regularly transforming fishermen into followers. You know, if you looked at someone who was a deadhead, a follower of the Grateful Dead band, I, I imagine you'd be able to tell pretty quickly, based upon their bumper stickers and their dress and the music blaring from their vehicle, what they prefer and what their life is all about. I just wonder that as followers of Christ, if it's, if it's as obvious that we have the passion for following Jesus, for being committed to him, to sharing him with others. You know, some of these fanatical fans may even try and win you over to their sports team, to their, their favorite music. Well, shouldn't we who have the love of Christ, who are followers of Jesus, be every bit as committed to sharing the love of Christ with others? So the Lord has summoned us to be his disciples. Let us follow him and become fishers of men.